Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right. Hello and welcome to the Thursday Run Show. Appreciate you listening, whether it's on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever it is you podcast. We begin, again, by reviewing a recently passed bill that awaits the governor's signature, but awaiting it will also be a lawsuit from the American Civil Liberties Union. I'm talking about SB 63, the recently passed legislation that would require bail for dozens of additional crimes and also limits the ability for organizations like nonprofits, bail funds, churches even, from participating in bailing out more than three individuals in a calendar year. It is burdensome on the poor, those who protest, who may not have the means to protest and bail themselves out when necessary for being arrested for protesting. The whole time this bill was being discussed, in the back of my mind, I thought, well, the ACLU is going to chime in, right? They're going to do something because this is an attempt to suppress freedom of speech. This is textbook First Amendment stuff, if nothing else. Two days ago, the ACLU released a press release saying, here we are. On that day, they wrote, Today, the Georgia House approved Senate Bill 63, which expands the number of low-level offenses requiring cash bail. The advancement of this bill is a big step back from years of criminal justice reform in the state of Georgia. The ACLU of Georgia issues the following statement in response to the bill. Cash bail systems hurt people who cannot afford to pay and do not make communities safer. The state of Georgia is moving backwards in terms of people being equal before the law, regardless of how much money they have. This morning, Maya Prabhu at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports that the ACLU is preparing to challenge this cash bail overhaul in court if the governor signs it into law. Not only is SB 63 bad policy, it is illegal. That is the quote of ACLU of Georgia Legal Director Corey Isaacson. That's what he told Maya Prabhu. It unconstitutionally criminalizes poverty and restricts conduct protected by the First Amendment. And the ACLU of Georgia will sue if the government signs the bill into law. The Political Georgia blog this morning, Maya Prabhu, reminding us the bill, sponsored by Senator Randy Robertson of Catala, would add low-level crimes such as trespassing and failure to appear for a traffic citation on the second offense. Oh, my God to the list of violations that require bail. I'm a little freaking out over the traffic court part because, as it turns out, today I'm headed to traffic court for the city of Atlanta. I got stopped. I want to say it was October of last year. A random police officer on a motorcycle pulls me over on Moreland as I'm heading to Little Five Points. Cites me for using uh, my mobile device, not hands-free. The truth is, actually, the the mobile device, the phone, had fallen out of the holder I had, and whatever. You know, I'm not I'm not even fighting. It's like a fifty dollar fine. Um, 
And actually, because they offer a pre-trial intervention, it's some PTIT they call it, where you can pay a little more money and do a driver safety course online. It was like 85 additional dollars. I chose to do that as well because I don't want this affecting my car insurance, right? A little money here saves a lot of money down the road. So I did that and thought I was good. And then I got a notice in the mail about two weeks ago. Said I needed to appear today at traffic court because they don't have record of me completing that. What? <laughs> I did. So uh, I'm going down there. And I, it, uh, there may have been a failure to appear. This would be my... I, I need to appear, right? Do you see how easy it is to fall into the crosshairs of the law and this new bill, if signed into law, put you behind bars for failure to appear for a traffic citation on the second offense? These are some of the scary little encroachments on our rights that we're sitting here letting happen. Well, the ACLU is stepping in to say this is insane. Uh, back to the AJCPs. It also restricts charitable funds or individuals from bailing anyone out anywhere in the state more than three times. By the way, Georgia is a big state. Lots of jurisdictions. More than 150 counties. That provision was inspired by frustrations with bail funds that helped spring Atlanta Public Safety Training Center protesters from jail. I mean, that is supposition, but it ain't wrong. The measure's GOP supporters say it will help stop violent criminals from being released on signature bonds only to be arrested soon after on another charge. I mean, there's, there's, there's ways to, to keep violent people behind bars for legitimate offenses. If you have a violent criminal history and you get arrested for, I don't know, Failure to appear in traffic court after the second violation. Well, you have a you have a history. Of course, there's a difference, right? Then John Q. Public or John Q. Realtor from somehow mistakenly failing to appear for something he didn't know he had to appear for until he got the nasty. Do you see what I'm saying? It's just apples and orangutans here. To that end, the ACLU says the law would dramatically increase the number of Georgians languishing in our jails. And as I mentioned yesterday, and it pointed out for several months now, just from watching headlines, jail is a really dangerous place, particularly in Georgia, particularly in Fulton County. A very, what are we, 10? We had 10 people pass away in Fulton County Jail last year. All right, I want to hop over to some other legislative action because I think we've talked a lot about SB 63. I'm just, I'm pleased to see that there's going to be some action on this the second the governor signs SB 63 into law. James Salzer, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, reporting yesterday about the uh, House approving a mid-year budget with a lot of infrastructure spending, a lot of it on roads. And I'm never one to complain about bettering our infrastructure in the state of Georgia. But at some point in time, we have to talk about continuing to invest in roads and highways and additional lanes on highways and new flyovers at interchanges. 
that will allegedly make traveling through metro Atlanta and the state of Georgia easier. What we keep seeing is we just keep throwing money at this and we keep finding ourselves behind having what's needed because we're just throwing more good money after bad. Uh, anyway, House on Wednesday, James Salzer reporting. Uh, the House Wednesday backed a mid-year budget that includes massive spending on road building, college facilities, and other infrastructure projects. Uh, the House backed most of the spending hikes Governor Brian Kemp proposed in January, approving a plan that would add $5 billion in new state spending during fiscal 2024, which ends on June 30th. Um, the House passed the budget 161 to 2, and it now moves to the Senate, which is expected to move quickly on the proposal. While tax revenue has slowed, the state has, we pointed this out before, $16 billion in rainy day and undesignated reserves, giving lawmakers plenty of room to increase spending. The state spent about $26.6 billion, excluding federal funding in fiscal 2020, the last budget plan approved before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Last year, it was more than $32 billion, and the mid-year plan would spend $37.5 billion for fiscal 2024. Of that, $2 billion would come out of undesignated reserves. All right, here's where we get to the uh, meat and potatoes. The budget includes a range of major infrastructure and educational projects, including a new medical school at the University of Georgia. We need more medical professionals throughout the state, right? A new dental school at Georgia Southern University, large-scale computer system upgrades, more money for sewer improvements, and massive spending on road construction. The state would spend an additional $1.5 billion alone on road building and maintenance. Now, when it comes to the roads, uh, reading from U.S. News and World Report, that still exists. Uh, the committee agreed to allot $1.5 billion in cash to the Georgia Department of Transportation before June 30th to speed planned road work and establish a freight infrastructure system. A freight infrastructure system. Got to get the goods moved around. And listen, I'm all for using rail to get goods and product around the state as opposed to the interstates. That will help. No offense to the truckers, but... Fewer 18-wheel trucks on the road and on the highways between the interstates. It's not a bad thing. That'll help alleviate some of the traffic problems, right? But the panel shifted the money around, proposing to spend $100 million more on road repaving to cover higher costs for asphalt and concrete. House also boosted spending for airport aid in part to provide state matching funds for a new airport near Griffin, Georgia. To pay for those changes, the panel cut Kemp's proposed spending on freight infrastructure God. <laughs> by $131 million to $510 million. Ugh, so close. And still, we have to talk about the fact that we keep putting money on our roads and highways and nobody's talking about a high-speed rail network. Nobody's talking about... How about state matching funds for MARTA, the largest mass transit authority in the country to not receive a dime of state money? It's long overdue for the state to step in and participate in Metro Atlanta's 
Rapid Transit Authority. Not the city of Atlanta, Metro Atlanta's Rapid Transit Authority. There might be a healthier appetite for a stronger network connecting Metro Atlantans to all of Metro Atlanta if the state were doing their part to aid Metro Atlanta, where the predominance of the state's population live by growing that rail network. Dream a little dream. I'd love to catch a train to the battery. Uh, If there's going to be a a hockey arena in Forsyth, wouldn't it be nice to be able to take MARTA to that from Midtown or Old Fourth Ward or any part of Metro Atlanta? A connection for a Clayton County student who attends Kennesaw State University to be able to take the train to and from home instead of having to pay for student housing. Just some thoughts. More on show after this. The America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Thank you for listening to The Ron Show, wherever it is you choose to do so. We appreciate that. Uh, This could be one of those days where, because the show airs 9 to 10 a.m. first and then replays 5 to 6 p.m., there could be a a secondary version that airs in the 5 to 6 p.m. hour because the Supreme Court has a pretty big case on their plate today, right? So, uh, and, and I'll dive into the ramifications on that next segment some breadcrumbs from history hey history is something to learn from i heard from some wise people back in the day but first i want to stick to something sort of localish i am a huge sports fan and in fact i'm a little geeky when it comes to even stadium and arena design like i am not a huge georgia state university fan although when they're not playing my favorite team like uga or I know they're in conference, but I lived in South Carolina for 11 years. Coastal Carolina University. I do like CCU. Anyway, when Georgia State's not playing one of those two schools, I'm, I'm pulling for Georgia State, but I have yet to go check out their new arena, and I'm pretty excited about that. And We'll do that at some point. In fact, I think Coastal comes to play. Did they come to play Georgia State maybe here in the next few weeks? I'll have to check the schedule and maybe dip in there to see a game there. So I'm a huge sports fan. Really excited that the World Cup will have its footprint in the city of Atlanta. Mercedes-Benz Stadium will be one of the venues. By the way, because the World Cup is the World Cup, they don't care about sponsor names. So Mercedes-Benz Stadium will just be Atlanta Stadium during the World Cup. Ouch. I can't imagine they're going... Are they going to cover the logo? Can you do that? I don't know. Anyway, as far as... The television audience is concerned that giant homage to Mercedes-Benz is just going to be Atlanta Stadium. Trays of grass rolled in to be put together like a giant puzzle to form the grass football pitch for this event. Very exciting stuff. Zachary Hansen wrote in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution three days ago a piece, uh, the headline, with World Cup looming, a push for progress in downtown Atlanta. Residents relish the investment downtown will receive before it hosts eight World Cup matches in 2026. Y'all, that's just two years away. They hope it doesn't disappear after the final whistle blows. And listen, in the city of Atlanta, we have to remember, we hosted the Olympics in 1996. I say it like that because it was kind of a long time ago. Blink and 28 years goes by, right? And... uh, The city's history with the Olympics and the aftermath of the Olympics, what's the physical legacy of those games that we can point to that better the city of Atlanta? 
Centennial Olympic Park. Isn't that better, Atlanta? Downtown has a large green space now. And you see all that's happened around it. The College Football Hall of Fame, the Skywheel, the Margaritaville Hotel thing. The Tabernacle is a vibrant venue. It's been fantastic for that area. Georgia State University now has a stadium that it derived from the old Turner Field, which was the former Olympic Stadium. That goofy-looking cauldron is there at the corner as well near the GSU Arena I just talked about. Uh, Georgia Tech got student housing. Georgia State got some of that as well. We didn't get an expansion of mass transit in a meaningful way. And that's what I'm getting to. I don't know if you saw this, but Los Angeles is hosting the Olympics in 2028. And it'll probably be, I don't know, at least you would think 8, 12 years before the U.S. could even entertain the notion of hosting an Olympic Games again. But I actually think Atlanta is in a prime position, and I don't know why somebody's not talking about this. Maybe I need to be the next Billy Payne. Somebody needs to be talking about this. I think Atlanta is primed to host an Olympic Games again. We have the venues for sure. The venues are not a problem. But I see this time and time again where we see municipalities and states foam at the mouth about new venues or hosting huge sporting events and the economic impact that it's going to bring. Do you know the Chicago White Sox and Southside Chicago? They have two Major League Baseball teams in the city of Chicago. I mean, it's a big city. They can handle it. The White Sox, back in the late 1980s, were threatening, mid-1980s, were threatening to leave Chicago for Tampa Bay. And Tampa Bay built an awful stadium (laughs) to try and woo them. And now, Tampa is throwing tons of money to get rid of that stadium for the team that they do have, the Rays. And Chicago is saber-rattling about leaving Southside Chicago again after they got the stadium that they took taxpayer money for to build. That was an underwhelming facility. I mean, it opened months before Camden Yards, and Camden Yards was a game-changer for Major League Baseball. Everybody went with the retro-fitted, not-cookie-cutter kind of design, and the White Sox kind of had a cookie-cutter design stadium, and it was almost immediately outdated. Anyway, I'm getting off track just a little bit, but I'm just concerned to, to see all this talk about, oh, what the World Cup is going to do for downtown Atlanta. Well, why don't we focus on doing for downtown Atlanta, regardless of what sporting event is coming? And why don't we put more money into, I don't know, ADA mobility? The city of Atlanta was sued recently for lacking in ADA mobility, but they got more than $100 million through various means for a public safety training facility. Real quick, back to this AJC piece uh, about the World Cup. We know this is a generational opportunity to set the trajectory for the next 30 years. Katie Kirkpatrick, president and CEO of the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce. We're excited about the opportunity to reimagine a downtown Atlanta that works for everyone, residents, students, workers, and visitors. We didn't do this after the Olympics, y'all. In fact, one of the venues that we use for the Olympics, the Georgia Dome, we tore down to build a newer dome stadium that we say we needed. And listen, I like Mercedes-Benz Stadium, don't get me wrong. But couldn't we have just re-roofed the Georgia Dome for, I don't know, maybe a quarter of the money spent for the uh, new football, I'm sorry, Mercedes-Benz Stadium? Couldn't we have just reimagined the Georgia Dome at a fraction of the expense? 
I am naive enough to think that the other three quarters of what it took to build Mercedes-Benz Stadium could have been invested in better infrastructure, mass transit, public housing. We lost public housing during the Olympics. You know that, right? We lost public housing during the Olympics. And it's not necessarily just about putting money into public housing, but how about affordable housing? Because without the mass transit, the affordable housing has to be nearby as well because the folks who are going to work the concessions at the World Cup can't afford to live near the venue hosting the World Cup. And that means they're going to need affordable transit options to get to and from their jobs. So yeah, when you hear me you get really excited about new infrastructure spending, Georgia DOT is getting more money. But then I remember the Georgia DOT and the state of Georgia don't contribute a dime to MARTA because, again, the largest mass transit authority in the country not to get state funding. That's when I become less excited. We have all the money in the world for sporting venues and hosting sporting events, and we're told it's going to change our lives. And yet, does it for the better? Back after this, The Ron Show on America One Radio. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. So yesterday on the Politically Georgia podcast, Georgia State University law professor and political scientist Anthony Michael Christ was on the show, and... With the Supreme Court set to hear oral arguments in favor and in opposition to Donald Trump appearing on presidential primary and general election ballots, we have history as our guide. We have only once before in American history had a situation where the notion of being an insurrectionist might come up in a court case to prohibit you from running for office. I want to read for you Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president. It's not to mean president, the elector, like in the electoral college, or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislator, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, remove such disability. So after hearing oral arguments on this matter between the state of Colorado and Donald John Trump. It would appear that most constitutional scholars who followed the proceedings, which were broadcast and streamed live for anyone who wanted to hear it, to hear, the consensus seems to be that the Supreme Court is likely going to reject any effort to kick Donald Trump off of the ballot over the January 6th Capitol riots. The Associated Press Mark Sherman reporting, conservative and liberal justices alike questioned during arguments Thursday whether Trump can be disqualified from being president again because of his efforts to undo his loss in the 2020 election to Democrat Joe Biden, ending with the January 6, 2023 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Their main concern was whether Congress must act before states can invoke a constitutional provision that was adopted after the Civil War to prevent former officeholders who, quote, engaged in insurrection from holding office again. There also were questions about whether the president is even covered under such provision. 
Now, remember when I read that, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, you can infer that the office of the president isn't actually included in that list of offices that an insurrectionist cannot hold. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state. Could it be that in our post-Civil War haze, our predecessors couldn't imagine a scenario where a sitting or former president would actually be an insurrectionist? Could be. Going back to the Associated Press article. Without such congressional legislation, Justice Elena Kagan was among several justices who wanted to know, quote, why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. The outcome could reflect a broad consensus of the court, and it could come quickly. Eight of the nine justices suggested that they were open to at least some of the arguments made by Jonathan Mitchell, Trump's lawyer at the Supreme Court. Hey, you got a good one. Trump could win this case if the court finds just one of those arguments persuasive. Sherman writes, Only Justice Sonia Sotomayor sounded like she might vote to uphold the Colorado Supreme Court ruling that found that Trump, quote, engaged in insurrection and is ineligible to be president. The state court ruled Trump should not be on the ballot for the state's Republican primary on March 5th. That date is important because that's the date that those who filed the suit in Colorado would like an answer by the Supreme Court on or before. Another key point made in this article is that the justices spent almost no time talking about whether Trump actually engaged in insurrection. Lawyer Jason Murray, representing the voters, pressed the point that Trump incited the Capitol attack to prevent the peaceful handover of power, quote, for the first time in history. Mitchell argued that the, the Capitol riot was not an insurrection. And even if it was, Trump didn't participate. Professor Anthony Michael Christ is a constitutional law professor at Georgia State University here in Atlanta, also a political scientist. He was on the Politically Georgia podcast yesterday discussing this case and the historical repercussions from the Reconstruction era of the Civil War. Bill Nygut sort of set him up because Professor Christ is actually teaching constitutional law this semester at Georgia State University, and he pointed that out. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think a big part of this case uh, is is about the original intent and the original purpose behind the, the reframers of the Constitution's decision to put this in the 14th Amendment. Um, what would the radical Republicans of Reconstruction have thought about um, you know this case that that's a real that's a really important part of this and so the the, the role in which history plays um, is is particularly you know dominant. You said you're gonna you're turning your class over tomorrow to your whole class getting to listen uh, to the arguments. And that's cool. I mean, some of us grew up watching space shuttles take off. Some generations get to watch <laughs> our republic burn to the uh, well, I mean we. It's hard to say what the Supreme Court's going to do. I, I think there is uh, a little bit of a false confidence maybe in the Trump camp that he seated three of the jurists. He also has Clarence Thomas, who frankly should have to recuse himself because his wife Jenny was embroiled in this as well. 
uh, Anthony Michael Christ, by the way, on Twitter did actually X Twitter X, whatever you're calling it, did actually go a little bit further this morning, and he tweeted a nice thread that sort of spelled this out. And and this to me, this is the delicious historical stuff because I'm such a history nut in the first place. Um, there's much discussion about democratic legitimacy and fears over how the body politic would react if the Supreme Court held Trump as an eligible under Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment. This is a concern that moderate Republicans aired in the 1860s. It was a disaster for America. If I haven't said this before, I'm going to remind you again that one of the best things you can do is just sit and watch all four hours of the documentary Reconstruction America After the Civil War. It is a fantastic documentary. I have watched it maybe half a dozen times when it airs on PBS. Fantastic. It covers the chapter immediately after the Civil War and how we sort of navigated through it from Reconstruction to Jim Crow and how abandoning Reconstruction as fast as we did as a nation played such a disastrous role in what we continue to deal with today as a society. Anyway, uh, Professor Christ continues, five state Reconstruction governments disenfranchised few ex-Confederates in the wake of the Civil War, among them being Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Florida, and Texas. Georgia and South Carolina paid a high price for this. Georgia was booted out of Congress twice, and South Carolina's black majority narrowly lost their power forever after 1876 because of racial violence. The Wilmington riots, insurrection essentially, and a close election. Alabama and Arkansas only removed former rebels who were disqualified under the 14th Amendment from their electorate, which kept the old ruling class at bay for a bit. Louisiana had the most rigid disenfranchisement provisions in law for insurrectionists that could be expunged with a loyalty pledge. Efforts to disenfranchise wide swaths of rebels in Mississippi and Virginia state constitutions failed because of squeamish fears over democratic legitimacy. He continues, the point being this, that too many political leaders during Reconstruction were either disinterested in how anti-democratic forces being allowed to participate in democracy could be harmful to democratic institutions or were too worried about how people who never cared about democratic legitimacy in 1860 should be welcomed back into the electoral process to enhance its legitimacy. So they might buy into Reconstruction. It was fanciful. Those who have demonstrated their opposition to democracy and the rule of law should not be easily trusted later. The Constitution and the lessons of constitutional reformation should mean something, he tweets. The provision of the 14th Amendment included in Section 3 is a rule that should be enforced. Democracy requires the rule of law. We should thoughtfully heed the lessons of Reconstruction today. I love that he frames it this way. Reconstruction being abandoned and the ushering in of the racist Jim Crow era, not just with its statues and relics, but its law that had to be fought against during the civil rights movement, it's the second greatest failing of our forefathers and predecessors. Right behind failing to eliminate slavery at the inception of this nation. I mean, ponder that for just a second, y'all. All that ails this country now stems from those two eras' blunders. The perpetuation of the element of racism in our body politic 
continued unabated after the Civil War for nearly another 100 years. And anything that you allow to fester for that long is going to have lasting impacts. It had a lasting impact on economic differences and opportunities, educational opportunities, judicial rights, how one is viewed in the eyes of law enforcement. I mean, again, when you watch (laughs) that documentary that I spoke about, America, Reconstruction of the Civil War, you learn so much about the demonization of the African-American, of the slave, of the formerly enslaved, that was rooted into the mindset of many American citizens, and you still hear elements of it today, nearly a century and a half later. Tonight, Tucker Carlson is going to share his interview with Vladimir Putin deep in the heart of Russia. And you're saying, what does this have to do with uh, reconstruction in the 14th Amendment and Trump's viability to run for... It has everything to do with this conversation. Because Vladimir Putin has no interest in seeing this nation heal from its past wrongs. He intends to capitalize on those past wrongs, as he has, as, by the way, he is a child of Kremlin, as did the Soviet Union. They sought to utilize the fractures in this country's fabric to their advantage. This country, founded on a bold vision that, in concept anyway, all men were created equal, that every citizen had the right to participate in a democracy shaped through a representative republic, that is the same country that lacked the bold vision to deal with human rights for the enslaved for nearly a hundred years after its inception, and then after a near-disastrous civil war that almost split the country in half, had remedied that shortcoming, that same country lacked the bold vision, to deal with the cancer that still remained within its body by being forceful in removing the toxins, the human toxins, from participating in the future crafting of that nation. Now look, January 6th was not the Civil War. But when I say that, once again, this country is going to let insurrectionists off the hook, I'm not saying that January 6th was equal to the Civil War, but I am saying that, once again, we the people are faced with the opportunity to rebuke treason and insurrection and relegate it to the sidelines of our public discourse. And instead, because I guess the framers of the 14th Amendment didn't imagine a scenario where a sitting president or a former president could partake in insurrection, we're going to let someone who held office and or refuse to respect the laws and customs of governance potentially hold the highest office in the land. 
Listeners of this program hear me talk all the time about how unfair our representative republic is. We are not in a democracy. The right is quick to point that out because it benefits them that we're not a democracy. We are, for all intents and purposes, a deeply flawed representative republic. The House of Representatives is supposed to be our democratic body, little d, democratic body. But it's been capped at 435 for more than 100 years. Our population has tripled since then. So we are less represented as the House of the People would allow it to be by about a third. We have a bicameral body that that House has to share duties with in Congress, the Senate, that is equally represented by all 50 states with two representatives in that Senate. But a state could have 66 times the number of people as any other state does, and they get the same representation. That is the case with California and Wyoming's population disparity. However, because of the capped House that I just spoke about that stuck at 435, that should be about triple, California only has 18 times the electoral college power of Wyoming. Only 18 times the voice of Wyoming when it comes to electing the President of the United States, despite being 66 times as populous. It's why this nation's detractors, like, oh, I don't know, Vladimir Putin, laugh at the idea of us trying to promote democracy around the world when we don't promote it here at home. Only he thinks that our being tough on the alleged law-breaking former president of the United States with his many indictments, he thinks that's what makes us anti-democratic. And he tells Tucker Carlson that. Hang tight, I'm going to let you hear that snippet in just a few seconds here. The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back. We're in the home stretch of The Ron Show for Thursday. Tucker Carlson's interview with Vladimir Putin. Everybody's waiting with bated breath to watch that tonight. Aren't we uh, going to watch that yet? Anyway, uh, Tucker, Tuckums, and Vlad get to talk about the United States pursuing democracy around the rest of the world, laughingly when we don't pursue it here at home. Only they're spinning it as if it's the prosecution of Donald Trump that makes us unqualified to speak about democracy. Oh, that's rich. Anyway, take a listen. As far as the prosecution of Trump is concerned, this is good for us in today's conditions because it shows the rottenness of the American system, which cannot pretend to teach others about democracy. All that is happening with Trump is the persecution of a political rival for political reasons. And this is done in front of the public of the United States and the whole world. What's funny is a lot of MAGAs are just salivating over that statement as if, oh my God, Vladimir Putin, he's so right. Sort of. No, he is sort of right. Not so much about the persecution of Donald Trump. I mean, don't commit crimes. You don't get persecuted, right? That's what we've been told by the right time and time again when it comes to civil rights and law enforcement. Don't do the crime and you won't have to deal with it. The same thing applies to him. What's funny is, as Vladimir Putin is right about this country lecturing others about democracy, (laughs) while we ourselves don't actually embrace it, it's the right that doesn't want to embrace democracy. It's the GOP that utilizes arcane and outdated crap like an electoral college, like gerrymandering, like the capped House of Representatives. There's an entire movement. By the way, follow Uncap the House on Twitter X, whatever you call it. You'll just be enlightened at the rationale that they make that why did we stop at 435 for the House of Representatives? The, the Electoral College 
gerrymandering, the capped house. These are all tactics and tools used to suppress actual democracy here in the United States. <laughs> but the mouth breathers who adore MAGA Man and now Vladimir Putin, interesting bedfellows, they're not going to connect those dots. They're not going to see it that way. They're going to see it as, yeah, yeah, this is a, a tool to suppress the will of the people. Hmm, interesting. Now you see tools to suppress the will of the people. Here's the short-sightedness. Every poll shows that Nikki Haley, the last person standing in the GOP primary, would fare better against Joe Biden in the general election, were it held today, than Donald Trump. It's actually in Joe Biden's best interest that Donald Trump stay on the ticket, that he be the nominee. That logic just doesn't track, friends. And I can't help but wonder if he somehow isn't allowed to be on the ballot or gets convicted and voters in the GOP scramble, which I kind of think is maybe the only reason that Nikki Haley's still in the race, if I'm being honest. I, I can't help but wonder if, if the left pivots as well. And on that note, we learned today that the special counsel investigating Joe Biden's handling of classified information, no charges coming against him. He held on to one document. Apparently a ghostwriter got to see it. No harm, no foul. Anyway, special counsel Robert Hurst's final report on Biden's retention of classified documents states that the president's memory, quote, appeared to have significant limitations. He noted Biden, quote, did not remember when he was vice president and did not remember, quote, when his son Bo died. The right will make some hay of that, of course, ignoring Donald Trump's many foibles and faux pas. Like he was pointing at E. Jean Carroll in a picture once and said, oh, that's my wife. It wasn't his wife. It was E. Jean Carroll, obviously. I digress. But it has nothing to do with the suppression of the will of the people to continue going after Donald Trump. Donald Trump allegedly broke laws, and our judicial system implores us to go after those who break laws, right? That's what y'all have been saying all this time. Anyway, enough about that. Let's talk about this doomed immigration bill. Steve Bemin at MSNBC with a reminder that the uh, doomed immigration compromise passed in the Senate and not getting a vote in the House, is likely only, only going to perpetuate our immigration issues for a lot longer. Republicans kind of had Democrats in a position where Democrats had to come to the table. The problem is Democrats came with a bipartisan immigration border bill in 2006, and the GOP rejected it. They did again in 2014. GOP rejected it. 2018, no. 2024, well, look what happened again. I mean, are you starting to think that maybe the GOP doesn't want to solve the problem? <laughs> Duh. I'll share that piece in the show notes at ronshowatl.com. By the way, the Senate today passing a Ukrainian and Israeli aid package after the border deal failed, but will it even get a vote in the House? I have my doubts. And by the way, can we just talk about how What's happening with Ukraine is sort of emblematic of what we haven't been able to do when it comes to bridging economic divides along civil rights fractures. And it all comes back to that. It really does. We have poured billions and billions of dollars into keeping Ukraine afloat and able to combat Russia's invasion. And now we're backing away from that. We're calling it wasteful spending. Well, we make it wasteful spending when we back out, when we allow Russia to advance, when we have Ukrainian soldiers lacking in ammo to continue to fend off their invaders. 
And so when inevitably, unfortunately, Ukraine continues to crumble backward, we'll say, oh, we wasted all that money. Yes, we did by not continuing to back Ukraine in a manner befitting. And this most recent GOP posturing and then backtracking, I mean, it doesn't embarrass them. It should embarrass us all. That is going to do it for The Run Show. Replay 5 to 6 p.m. on the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com. Back tomorrow, 9 to 10 a.m. And wherever you podcast, show notes at RonShowATL.com. Have yourselves a great day.